The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What are the most successful change leaders of today doing to deliver great results? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is Kate Ebner. Good morning, and thank you for joining me. You know, over the past 35 years, mindfulness and meditation have really gone from being something perceived by the general public as being, you know, out there to being practiced by everyone from professional athletes like Michael Jordan to soldiers in the U.S. military to business leaders. And, you know, today, mindfulness and meditation are becoming mainstream also in the world of work and leadership practiced by organizations from Google to Goldman Sachs. You know, I'd like to invite you today to participate in a conversation that I'm having with a renowned mindfulness teacher, Tara Brock. She's a clinical psychologist, the founder of the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, D.C., and a teacher whose uh, wisdom and perspective have really drawn on an enormous community, not only here in Washington, but around the world. So good morning, and thank you for joining me, Tara. Oh, thanks so much, Kate. I'm delighted to be part of this. Well, thank you. And, and you know, we've covered a little bit about mindfulness in previous shows, but I, I feel that in so many ways to make this connection between uh, mindfulness and leadership is vitally important, you know, for our listeners. And, you know, I want to start off with a little bit about you. And if, if I know that you have a a wonderful story, and it would be great if our listeners could just know a little bit more about who you are and how you've come into this important role that you play teaching mindfulness and meditation. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your background? Oh, no, my pleasure. Yeah, well, uh, the family I grew up in, my father was an attorney, and he was and also very politically active, as was my mother, uh, who is executive director of a nonprofit. So I kind of grew up in a family that really valued making a difference and so on. And in college, I got involved with uh, political activism and started noticing how violently we were condemning violence. Uh, so I, I kind of went in the direction of be the change you believe in, uh, really feeling that in order to have meaningful change, we really needed to change consciousness and joined an ashram. And I, an ashram is a spiritual community. So I went from being on this track to become a, a lawyer, to go to law school, to um, joining an ashram where I was getting up at, you know, 3.30 every morning and chanting and meditating and doing a lot of yoga and really doing a lot of inner work. And so I, I stayed in an ashram for about 10 years and then uh, shifted into Buddhist practice, which was more of a fit for my temperament. Um, and since then, I've been. Uh, I also got my degree in clinical psychology because there's such a, a deep weave between uh, the practices of meditation and really the transformation of the psyche. So um, I that became that's been my world. Uh, working with clients, work teaching therapists how to bring mindfulness into psychotherapy, and then in becoming again more active in terms of. Um, social justice issues and environment and so on, but really, uh, really being part of what we call engaged spirituality, really bringing consciousness into the activities of protest and going for change. So that's a, a, a thumbnail sketch. I hope that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I mean, there's for anyone who's who knows Tara's work or is interested in learning more about her, certainly go online because it's it's a an amazing uh, story and contribution that you have been making uh, for many years. You know, 
We hear the words mindfulness and meditation used interchangeably quite often, and even I am noticed using um, them, them back and forth. So I'd like to start with a little bit of a definition of terms, Tara. Could you give us a distinction and a sort of a description of each one? Sure, and I'm glad you're asking the question because it's out there. Um, meditation is any training in attention. How do you pay attention that's geared to develop an optimal state of mind, whether it's peace or happiness? Um, so examples, meditation primarily includes uh, trainings in concentration, which is focusing the mind so you get more calm and ease and collectedness. Or there's heart meditations that bring up loving kindness or forgiveness. Mindfulness is a form of meditation. It, it's naturally occurring. We're all, we all have the capacity for mindfulness, but mindfulness training, which is a form of meditation, is paying attention on purpose and without judgment to the present moment. So it's paying attention on purpose, and it's intentional, without any judgment to what's going on moment to moment. And it's characterized by a quality of interest and friendliness. Mm-hmm. So, so if you think of meditation, usually most people are either practicing something that's more concentrative, where there's a focus, on an object like the breath, our mindfulness, which might include that, but then opens to really be with whatever is going on moment to moment. Thank you very much. That was. I think that was very, very clear. And, you know, many of our listeners are leaders, and, you know, I, I have a theory about mindfulness and meditation and leadership that I'll share with you in just a moment. But I'm really interested to hear from your perspective, you know, why is mindfulness a topic that leaders should care about today? Well, I, th- I think of mindfulness and meditation more broadly as an evolutionary tool that allows us to maximize our human potential. So just the way we know that exercising our body really leads to best health, it's now becoming more and more clear that by exercising our minds, by exercising our minds and training our hearts, we actually bring out the qualities that most allow us to serve others in the role, whether it's, you know, as a business professional or a leader in a nonprofit. You know, um, meditation, you know, science has shown that it directly activates and integrates the prefrontal cortex. So what that means, this is the most recently evolved part of our brain. So that's what's responsible for executive thinking and this compassion network we have in our brain that allows us to attune to others, have empathy, compassion. These are the qualities that a leader both models and needs in being effective, whether we call it emotional intelligence, you know, capacity for insight, vision, intuition. This is what meditation actually um, activates and cultivates. And I, I'm thinking as I'm speaking of, uh, I, was, I taught for a bit at the Superior Court in Washington, D.C., and one of the justices was talking to me about the importance of mindfulness in her life, and she said, it lets me feel with those that are facing me, that are facing the bench. And she said otherwise she would lose access to her wisdom and her heart in pursuing justice. So it, it has all sorts of benefits, but um, it is really what allows us to be the best that we can be. Thank you. I, I have sometimes heard people who carry important responsibilities, who are leaders in organizations, talk to me about um, kind of like, okay, do I really have to? Like, if, like. I've got so much to get done. I just need to focus and get it done. I don't know if I can slow down. I don't know if I can really listen. Like this just seems like above and beyond, which is, (laughs) you know, kind of where people sometimes are. And, you know, I'm curious about that in terms of, um, and what would your response be if someone said that? Well, first, understanding, because we live in an incredibly demanding, stressful world, and our mantra is, there's not enough time, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the feeling that we're in. 
and unfortunately, there's a bit of illusion or delusion because um, what matters most to us, if we really check back in and sense what matters most to us, um, we end up not really going for and attending to what matters most when we get speeded up. We end up kind of trying to check things off the list. And one woman who was a palliative caregiver and she spent time with thousands of people on their deathbed said that the greatest regret of the dying was, I didn't live true to myself. You know, I lived according to the expectations of others, the demands, my internalized shoulds, but I didn't live true to myself. Mm-hmm. So it takes, it takes a bit of pausing and paying attention to get that our fast-paced doings aren't necessarily bringing us to or accomplishing what matters. It's like, I think Thoreau said that, you know, we spend our life fishing, but it wasn't really fish we were after. We miss out on the moments if we're speeding along, we miss out on the moments where there's genuine human contact, where we can really look into another person's eyes and sense the the integrity and tenderness of who's there. And, you know, we miss out on so much, including our own deepest wisdom when we're speeding along. So I don't go into that whole long rap, but I will say take just a little bit of time. And And I found that people, if they're willing to practice just even a few minutes a day, um, it starts to create a habit that's a really positive habit that can then kind of bleed into the other parts of our lives. Thank you. You know, um, we've, at, at the Institute for Transformational Leadership, we've hosted the Google Search Inside Yourselves program, which is a blend of Uh, neuroscience, emotional intelligence, and mindfulness work. And we've um, been really thinking about mindfulness and meditation as practices or or as ways of leading, given the complexity of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. It seems like more than ever there's a need for exactly what you're describing. Mm -hmm. And and I'm curious, you know, I I guess my theory that I told you (laughs) I would share a little while ago is... That as things be- have gotten faster and more complex and as technology has enabled us to work from everywhere at any time of day or night, we're in a process of trying to understand what life is all about. And, and, and in, a, in a way, we're working differently than we ever have. We're having to define a new way of, of working and living. And it, and our, t- our devices and our um, achieving mentality can really can really mean that we're investing more than ever in work and perhaps um, depleting ourselves by not giving ourselves opportunities for renewal. So when I think about survival strategies for leaders who are handling a lot of responsibility, perhaps at home as well as work, and who are meeting a fast pace every day and working in a very complex environment, um, it seems to me that mindfulness and the practices of meditation and mindfulness are really here to stay because of the complexity that, that isn't going to go away, I don't think. What do you think? Uh, well, I love what I'm hearing because, I, I mean, because it, it resonates, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I feel like the, the faster we go and the more we're living in a cyber world, a virtual reality, the more disconnected we get. Um, and we lose our connection to our bodies, and there's, there's a sense of, you know, James Joyce in one of his short stories says, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. You know, we kind of, we're kind of off in another realm. And, we, and it makes it very hard to contact our hearts. Um, I know for myself when I'm zipping along at a fast pace, I might talk about somebody, I might hear a story of somebody struggling with something and I'll say the right things like, oh, that's really too bad. But that visceral sense of tenderness and compassion isn't awakened me because I'm just moving at too fast a pace. So, so like you, I think that it's, it's a way to balance it, to learn to pause and learn to reconnect uh, with what's going on here. And I also think that the the stress and pace of the world um, exacerbates what I call the trance of unworthiness, 
which is mm. we, we always feel like we're falling short. And there's this chronic sense of not enough. Uh, one woman was accompanied her mother who was, uh, when she was dying, and her mother came out of a coma and looked her in the eyes and said, you know, all my life I thought something was wrong with me. And that was, that was it. That was her last word. She closed her eyes and she died. And it was very poignant for this woman who, fast-paced, uh, professional, so on, to realize that um, part of our speed is we're always trying to do more to feel good about ourselves. And there's underneath that a sense that something's wrong with me. And it's not until, you know, there's a, a phrase that our sickness is homesickness, that we're the real reasons that the culture and individually there's sickness is that we're not really aligned and listening and connected with, with the life right here. And so for this woman, it was incredible motivation to, to, re, to really listen inwardly and befriend and, and to be aligned with her inner life. So meditation actually is a, a training that helps us to decondition trance to get out of the virtual reality, to get out of that trance of unworthiness and begin to tap into our hearts and our natural intelligence. Thank you so much, Tara. And I, I'd like to explore this trance of unworthiness and its impact on us in, in the way that we endeavor when we come back from the break. My guest today, Tara Brock, is the author of the book Radical Acceptance and also True Refuge, Finding Peace and Freedom in Your Own Awakened Heart. Um, I'm enjoying this conversation, Tara, and when we come back from the break, we'll continue. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome back once again. I'm so glad you're part of this conversation today. My guest is Tara Brock, and we are talking today about mindfulness, about meditation, and about leadership, and how these things can belong in the same sentence. And before the break, Tara, you and I were talking, began to talk about this trance of unworthiness. And in fact, I'm sitting and looking at you on the cover of Spirituality and Health magazine, beautiful picture of you. And the title of the cover article is Wake Up from Unworthiness. And I know this has been something you've really been doing a lot of deep work and thinking about for a long time. Um, let's, let's go back there again and talk about um, how, the tra- how does the trance of unworthiness, uh, why, is, why do we call it a trance? 
Well, I'd say if I asked people, those that are listening, how many of you feel like you judge yourself too much, probably everybody would nod or raise their hand. Um, but, it, but then what is not in our awareness is how much that self-judgment ends up impacting every moment, whether it's a moment, whether it's our relationships where we, on some deep level, feel like, well, if this person really knew me or what I was like, they wouldn't like me. So there's a way in which it prevents us from being more spontaneous or natural or vulnerable. And at work, uh, especially for leaders to see in both in themselves and in others how much that sense of um, a fear of failure and a sense of not okay makes it hard to take risks, to think creatively, to engage, you know, and collaborate in a, in a really juicy way because there's a fear of not okay. I know for myself, it's really what got me to write Radical Acceptance because as a therapist, I just could see the enormous suffering of it. And I went and went on book tour and was uh, went to one campus and they had a big poster with a picture of me announcing the workshop and the uh, title underneath the work underneath the picture was something is wrong with me. So <laughs> it, was like, it was like such an interesting entree to a new group that I was working with. But but people once they get that 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 there's a really a grip of not enough or not good enough that is pretty much accompanying them through life. Just that recognition allows. Uh, them to begin to wake up out of it. And, and the waking up out of it has um, everything to do with self-compassion. I mean, we, the moment that we can get that we're having a hard time and that what's going on is painful, we get some tenderness towards ourselves. And then when we can recognize that we're not alone and other people are experiencing the same thing, we don't take it quite as personally, but we're able to start bringing uh, a self-kindness that is tremendously healing. And for leaders working with other people to see others going through it and know that their compassion and their positive regard is part of the healing is really important. You know, one of the th- places where I see people struggle is bet- you know, between the idea of having a high standard and maybe the idea of being compassionate almost as if um, something bad might happen to my high standards if I become compassionate with myself and other people. And I see people uh, hanging on to the standards almost as if they define them. You know, like I stand for this, you know, and if I can't do it at that level or in this quality or, you know, as close to perfect as I can, then, um, then I don't want to put my name on it. You know, and that is that identification with that standard is driving them, and I I really appreciate the perspective about bringing self compassion as a maybe as a pathway toward bringing compassion for others because I think I often also hear people say like I can be compassionate about someone else but it's I'm I, I need, I'm tough on myself. Um, That's and exactly I'm, right. Yeah, I mean we're again like when I think about this belief that some folks have that you know if you bring compassion to yourself you're somehow relaxing your standards what do you think of that i think you're naming one of the core beliefs that stops us the fear and we don't trust ourselves so we fear that if we're accepting our kind towards ourselves all of a sudden we're going to lose our motivation we're going to fail miserably we're going to be the terrible person we thought we were Mm. and i i often think of Carl Rogers, great psychologist, who said, it wasn't until I accepted myself as I was that I was free to change. Mm. That, that acceptance and self-compassion is actually the prerequisite to us really maximizing our potential. It's the, it's the grounds it comes out of. And I'll often have people get real honest with themselves and they say, okay, for the last 20 years, it's been your habit to drive yourself based on a should, how you should be. And what do you think the effect of that is? How, what's the effect of it on your intimate relationships? What's the effect of it on your actual creativity, on, your, on what you feel most good about in terms of yourself? And it becomes clear that the shoulds, should is a signal that... Um, that is, should raise our, that 
has the potential to raise our antennas because it doesn't serve. That doesn't mean we can't have a vision of what's possible and have a passionate dedication to it. But that has a different energy than a, a should that says something's wrong with me if I don't. There's an aversive quality that's punitive and actually does not bring out the best of us. Nice. Well, you know, do you recommend that, you know, that someone someone begin by, you know, I guess, um, telling themselves the truth about how I'm feeling, how I, how I am, you know, I, you know, how do you get started at dismantling some of these um, really strong driving beliefs? It's a great question. It's kind of the question of, you know, we spend most of our time in reactivity, that we're mm-hmm. reacting to those beliefs that I'm going to fail and last. If I don't drive myself, this is going to go wrong. Um, and how do we shift from a reactive mode, which is really, if you think of the brain and the brain stem and the limbic system, and then the more recently evolved part of our brain, our reactivity is coming from the fear centers in our emotional brain, in the, in the brain stem and the limbic system. And so how do we go from that to responding to ourself and our world from the more recently evolved part of our brain, the, you know, the cortex and the frontal cortex, which has the capacity for perspective and mindfulness and uh, moral, truly moral and ethical kind of decision making. So one of the ways I think about it is that the more stressed we are, the more easily we get hijacked by the limbic in other words, the more we, we get into that reactivity that's trying to control things, trying to get safe, trying to find our way to advantage, because that's what we're trying to do. And we're inclined that way. Um, just to understand it, the, you know, in an evolutionary way, we have a negativity bias that scans mm-hmm. for what can go wrong. So the mm-hmm. person that's had 100 encounters with a dog, they'll remember the one time that the dog that they got bit, but not the other times that were really fun. Or if you get one criticism, it takes six affirmations to balance it. So we have a negativity bias that keeps us reacting from the limbic system. And it's impact, and then it gets impacted by our genetics, by the kind of caregiving we got, our caregiving relationships in the culture. So in order to activate the higher part of our brain, the frontal cortex, we need to get that we're reacting from kind of the fear-based parts of our brain, and we have to learn to pause and then practice training our attention so we can activate the prefrontal cortex, which actually down-regulates the, the limbic and the brainstem. And so that's where meditation comes in. It literally is a training that deconditions that reactivity that's based on fear. That's a, that's great. And so, so, so the place to begin is actually with um, it sounds like awareness, and then the practicing of meditation, or a, a sort of a bringing a, a focus to your thinking, um, so that you can then operate from a different part of your brain and I know from the work that that we do uh, with emotional intelligence that the self-awareness is really the you know just even knowing that it's happening to you can be a really big step (laughs) that's exactly right that's exactly right in other words if anyone that's listening says okay what situation do I get caught in where I know I'm playing out a habitual reactivity and then has the and then basically has the intention to notice any time that happens and you get that rush of whether it's anger or fear or hurt or whatever, this is a moment to pause. And that's the whole deal, Kate, is being able to pause. Mm-hmm. Because if you can if you are caught in the um, rush of the limbic system, you just move from having a feeling to a behavior to try to control things. But if you can pause then you can interrupt the patterning and be able to make the shift from the lower part of the brain to the prefrontal cortex. And the, uh, the quote I love the most on this is this Viktor Frankl who writes, between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space is our power and our freedom. 
So that's the beginning, just what you're talking about, the awareness that, oh, this is happening. Let me pause. Mm-hmm. And in that pause or in that space, it's not about making up a strategy or um, controlling oneself for a couple minutes so that then you can come back in and, you know, strong in a minute later. Like, what, what are you doing in that pause? That's you know, how do you that's do it? Exactly, that's a wonderful question. I mean, that brings us into once you've paused, you have some choices. Mm-hmm. Once you've paused, you, you're kind of stepping out of the chain of reactivity and you have some choices as to how you pay attention and as to what you do. Now, if there's time in a pause, in, you have done some practice with meditation, you'll know to just ground yourself in what the senses are experiencing. In other words, come out of your thoughts he shouldn't have done this, I can't do this, this this is the worst thing that's going to happen. You know, come out of that whole spinning of worry and fear and come right into the body and begin to breathe. And this is what's called activating the parasympathetic nervous system to begin to calm down out of that arousal state. So you pause, you come out of your thoughts, you begin to breathe a little long, slow, deep breath, and re-arrive in reality right here in the senses. And then depending on how much time you have, you can um, deepen that, the meditative state in a way that really accesses a quality of uh, mental lucidity, clarity, focus, calm, and compassion. That, that's a longer answer to the question. But the first step is come out of your thoughts and into your body and breathe. Mm. Thank you. That's, I think, very helpful. You know, if you're, if you're having a busy day and maybe something happened that put you in a reactive state and you've recognized that you're not at your best and you're feeling defensive or maybe you're feeling aggressive or even just thrown off, um, you make the conscious choice to pause and to breathe. How long does it take to come back to yourself? That's a great question. Um, you know, because there's been different research showing, you know, when you're activated, how, how long does it take to come back? I mean, one bit of research, uh, John Gottlieb, I think it was Gottlieb, uh, with couples when they're activated, and he had them, you know, kind of go apart to separate rooms and, and just read or do whatever they were doing, come back in 15 minutes, and they were able to, they moved entirely from a highly stressed, aroused state to a place where they could communicate, listen, and solve problems together. But it's quicker if you know how to meditate because that was, that was them just sitting off reading magazines. If you can pause and know how to, you know, slow down your breath a little and just calm your nervous system that way, relax a little bit in the muscles of the body that are tight, and you know how to keep your attention from going off into the looping thoughts. Every time we're thinking the worry thoughts and the angry thoughts, we are um, then just fueling our body more. I mean, the biochemistry keeps being fueled. It's said that, you know, an emotion's natural length of time is 1.5 minutes. That's how long an emotion arises, plays itself, and then dissolves. But the reason for most of us, they stay around a lot longer is because we keep having thoughts that mm. refuel the emotion. And then they stay a lot longer than yes. 1.5 minutes. So again, that's, that's the value of meditation training is you, not only are you pausing, but you're learning how to kind of come out of the thoughts that aren't serving and come into the body in a way that you start just watching and witnessing the, the moving shifting, changing sensations and emotions, and you begin, in that witnessing, there's a lot more space and a lot more capacity to choose wisely how to proceed. So I'm, I'd be glad, I don't know when a good time is, but I'd be glad to break down a little bit of the stages of how to really arrive fully in presence. Great idea. We're going to actually take a break in another minute, so maybe when we come back from the break, you could show us that. I think that would be very, very helpful for people. you know. And for those of you who are listening today, I, 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 maybe you're listening because you're already practicing meditation and mindfulness. Maybe you're listening because you're interested and you would like to try to understand 
whether it's worth doing this. And maybe you're a fan of Tara Brock like I am and you're listening to hear what she has to say. Um, But I, I hope that you're finding in this conversation some real incentive and motivation to begin the practice of um, coming home to yourself, you know, as you go through a busy day, a busy week. And uh, I especially like this conversation, Tara, on a Monday because (laughs) we have the whole week ahead of us. (laughs) Right. We're really practicing this. Um, I think right now we'll go ahead and we'll take our break. Um, For those listening, once again, my guest is Tara Brock. I'm Kate Ebner, and you're listening to Inside Transformational Leadership. This is a production of the Georgetown University Institute for Transformational Leadership. And we will be right back. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. This is the last segment of our show today, and I'm having a wonderful time, Tara, talking with you about mindfulness, meditation, and leadership. And we've been really talking about what happens when you are um, triggered, when you become reactive, and actually what to do about it so that you can stay connected with your heart and bringing your your best self, your fullest potential to the day, to the work that you have in front of you and to the people around you. So before the break, Tara and I were talking a lot about what's happening um, what's happening physiologically. We were also talking about the idea of noticing and pausing so that you can choose. And Tara, I'd like to pick up there. You made a wonderful offer to sort of run us through what a, what a practice could look like. Could you start there? Be my pleasure. Yeah. Well, the, one of the starting points is to recognize we're, we're off in, uh, we're lost in thought most of the time and mostly we're believing our thoughts. So if our thoughts, you know, as it said, we have this negativity bias or thoughts like I'm going to fail or others are going to not like me or whatever it is. If there are thoughts about what's going to go wrong, that creates a kind of biochemistry of fear in our body, which gives us less access to our best capacities in the frontal cortex, and then we don't perform so well, and then that's more evidence for, I'm going to fail. 
And this, is, this has been described in a famous quote, the thought becomes the word, the word becomes the action, which mm-hmm. becomes the habit, which harden into character, and actually, Gandhi said, and become our destiny. So the idea is that neurons that fire together wire together. The more we practice worry thoughts, the more we live in that kind of soup of anxiety in our body. And so meditation often, most, most styles begin with recognizing, oh, I'm thinking, and then training to come back into the body and into the moment in some way so that we get some choice over hey, are these thoughts serving? Are they actually perpetuating a kind of narrowness of body, heart, and mind? So the first part of meditation training is coming back. And you might choose the breath as a focus. That's the most common. But it could also be sound or sensations in the body. And the practice is just notice when you've gone off in thought. And gently bring yourself back to the body or the breath until you start getting the knack of noticing the difference between any thought, like kind of that virtual reality of a sound bite and an image, and this vivid immediacy of um, sensations and aliveness and sound that's going on right here. So that's the first part, learning to come back. And that's a little more of a concentrated part because you're kind of focusing on the breath and just back again and again until there's a little bit more quietness in the mind. The second piece, if coming back to the first part, is being here, which is the training and mindfulness. And and as a note, um, Jack Kornfield and I have put together a course called The Power of Awareness that goes through over a six-week period of time or seven, you can choose or even longer if you'd like, which takes each of these pieces and unfolds them. It's a a really good training. And for those interested, uh, if you just get on my email list on my website, you'll find out about the next round of it. But the being here, training in in mindfulness, sometimes it's called mindfulness, but I, I sometimes have a broader description because in Asia, the word for heart and mind is really the same. So it's mindfulness and heartfulness. It's really bringing a kind, mindful attention. And in that training, there's really two questions that if you walk away with will serve you. And one is, what is happening inside me right now? So this is a question if you just ask it. What's happening inside me right now? You begin to sense the awareness wakes up as to what's going on in the present moment. The second question is, and can I be with this? So the second question actually invites some space for whatever's here. So mindfulness training is learning to ask what's happening, to just recognize. That's it's called the first wing of attention. Recognize what's going on inside here. What's happening? And the second wing is the wing of allowing, of being with. One of the supports for mindfulness training that we often use is naming what we notice. You don't have to name all the time, but if you just notice a bit of anxiety, you mentally whisper, oh, anxious, anxious. Or if you feel a sense of a, a lot of tension in the, in the gut, just tense, tight, you know, just whisper it. The shamans say that when you name a fear, it loses its power over you. And so there's a real effectiveness in this first wing of mindfulness of recognizing just to name what's there so that you become the witness and you're not caught in it. So... The trainings are coming back, learning to be here, mindfulness, and there's also um, heart trainings, which are absolutely essential for mindfulness to work. As I mentioned earlier, if there's not some quality of self-compassion or self-kindness, there's actually an element of judgment that undermines mindfulness. And because we are so rigged to be down on ourselves, having that, that quality of self-compassion is, is critical. So what I'll do is I'll give you an example of how you can bring uh, mindfulness to an area of difficulty. And I often use the acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N, to to illustrate this because R-A-I-N really shows how you're bringing mindfulness and compassion right to the present moment to untangle a tangle. So this is when you're stuck. And the R is recognized, as we've talked about. 
the A is allow. You allow it to be there, kind of like a mentally whispering, yes, it's okay. The I, and that lets you then I investigate. And you begin to notice, oh, where am I feeling this? How is it moving? Is there a belief related to it? You begin to investigate and get a better sense of what's there. But it's not a mental investigation. It's really um, more through your body. The N is the fruit of rain. You don't do anything with the N. Once you've recognized, allowed, and investigated, and you investigate with deep kindness, the N is what's called non-identification. You're no longer caught. You're no longer the fearful self or the angry self or the hurt self. You might think of the end as you're back to your natural compassionate awareness. And an example of, of recently that uh, one man I worked with who was an executive in a tech company and he had a number of teams under him that he was uh, kind of in charge of and supervising and he had a real temper problem and really turned out alienating so many people, in, both on the work front, but also his, his teenage daughter and his wife and so on. And so he heard one of my podcasts and, and decided that mindfulness might be able to help get his anger, you know, work with his anger. And he practiced with rain, where whenever he'd feel the surging up, that kind of explosive heat, energy, he'd say, he'd recognize it and he'd allow it. He'd just kind of try to stay still, pause and allow it. And then when he'd start investigating anger, this is what got really interesting to him, he'd find that underneath the anger, there was a grip of fear and it was the fear that things are going to go out of control and then I'm going to fail. It means I'll fail. So there was a lot of fear there. And as he investigated, he could sense what the fear needed was really just for him to say, I see you, I accept you, it's okay. In some way, give some space. So that was the kindness part. Investigate with kindness. And every round that he would recognize the fear, allow it, investigate and sense, I'm sorry, recognize the anger and allow it, then investigate, and he'd sense the fear, and he'd just be with himself, saying, it's okay. He'd find the end of rain was, there was more space. He had more perspective. He didn't have to act on it, which is tremendous freedom. And he told me that um, some weeks after he had been practicing rain with this, uh, one of his um, team managers came in and told him that... uh, you know, he had, unfortunately, some things had fallen through the cracks, and he was really behind, and this guy started feeling his anger coming up, and he internally recognized it, allowed it, gave, gave, just kind of let it be there, and he was able to breathe with it, and so it passed, and he could see this guy was really doing his best, and that, you know, he was, he was a man with great integrity, so he, he didn't blow up at him, and at the end of their meeting, the guy said, I, you know, I appreciate your flexibility, and I just need to tell you that my uh, wife has stage four cancer, and the kids are really upset, and this is part of the reason so much has fallen through the cracks, mm-hmm. at which point both men, it just, it was like, um, there was a kind of a shockwave that went through this, the, the executive guy, and the men hugged. And he, his, his uh, person left the room, and he told me, he said, you know, if I hadn't practiced rain with my anger, I would have blown up at him. And instead, I had a moment of real human contact. Wow. Yeah. So I realize we don't have that much time, but I'd just like to invite maybe for a moment just to get a taste of uh, this experience of pausing and being with uh, for anyone that's listening right now, just to come into stillness for a moment. And you might sense if there's some part of your body that can relax, just to let go a little, soften. And take a nice full in-breath. Extend the in-breath so that you're really breathing in and filling up the lungs. And breathing out slowly so you can feel the release of the breath. You might do that again. Filling the lungs. Slow out breath. And then just let the breath resume in its natural rhythm. Relaxing with the breath. 
Just feel that sense of arriving, a little more presence. Mindfulness really begins with recognizing, and you can ask yourself what's happening right now inside me. And just notice whatever sensations are there, whatever feelings are there right now. And then mindfulness includes allowing, just letting be, not making anything wrong, not assuming anything should be different. And continue recognizing whatever's going on moment to moment and allowing. And if you want to experiment a little, you can even put your hand on your heart for a moment. And just notice if you send a very gentle message of kindness inwardly. Just sending a message to yourself of it's okay. And when I'm upset, sometimes I'll say, it's okay, sweetheart, or um, I'm sorry, and I love you. So if something's going on that's difficult in your life, you can send to the part of you that's struggling a message of kindness. And just notice how in just a few brief moments, your relationship with yourself can radically shift. But just pausing, breathing, relaxing, noticing what's here, and offering kindness. The poet Rumi says, do you make regular visits to yourself? And that's really what this practice is, becoming intimate with the life within us, and then discovering that the more we're awake and kind to the life within us, the more, with all those we meet, we're able to bring these qualities of compassion and care. Thank you. Thank you, Tara. That was very helpful and beautiful. Thank you very much. You know, we really are just down to the last moment of our show, and I know that many people who are listening may want to do more of this, Tara. You offer some incredible resources on your website. Would you just tell people where they can go to learn more from you. Yeah, please do visit my website. I'd love to hear from you and have you be engaged. It's tarabrock.com. And I have many hundreds of uh, free talks and meditations there. And as I mentioned, if you join the mailing list, we have, um, of course, the power of awareness that's a really strong introduction to all of this, uh, all of these practices. So you'll find all the resources you need uh, it, by visiting the website, and I, I'd love for you to do that. That's wonderful, and I would encourage um, people to do this, and I know that, um, you know, the, for those of you who are perhaps new to this, you know, I want to go back to some of the early conversation we had in this hour about what does this have to do with leadership? And remind you that this is a way to stay compassionate, not only with other people, but also with yourself as you strive to achieve and meet the complexities um, that you inevitably are working on day to day. Thank you very much for being with us today, Tara Brock. This has been a wonderful hour. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Kate Ebner, next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week.